Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. This past week, while studying George Barna's Millennials in America report, I read one of the most attention-grabbing attributes revealed in this research regarding the millennial way of life is their widespread desire to identify a purpose for living. Three out of four millennials are still searching for their purpose in life. This evidence that millennials want a life of purpose reminds me of the popularity of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, which has been translated into 137 languages and sold more than 50 million copies. There is weighty evidence that human beings are designed to want a purpose for living. This episode series is designed to help the men listening accomplish exactly what so many millennials and so many humans in general want, experiencing the satisfaction and joy of knowing that they are accomplishing the purpose for which they were created. Our goal for this episode is to frame a biblical one-sentence description of the mission that Christ assigned us so that it isn't fuzzy and we can stay focused upon it. Thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode number 3 of Mission Focus Meant for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. So far in this series, Don't Waste Your Life, Rule It for Jesus, we saw that the foundational commitment required to overcome a disordered way of life is the conviction that our inner private world of the spiritual must govern the outer physical world of activity. Then we observe that the only way to connect our everyday lives to God's mission for us is intentionality. We observe Jesus demonstrating this intentionality by shutting out his outer world and retreating to a quiet place to discuss his mission with his CO as a regular part of his life. Today, we examine a third requirement for staying focused on our mission, mission clarity. A target on the wall to aim for is essential for living according to our mission. Fuzziness about our calling is a major cause of inaction. Competing internal drives take us down paths that consume our time and energy. I'm reminded of the conversation in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland between a disoriented Alice and the Cheshire Cat. The cat's sage wisdom is summarized in the famous quote, If you don't know where you are going, any road will take you there. Let's return to football for an analogy. The more I enjoy a son who coaches high school football, the more complicated I realize the offensive and defensive game plans have to be. And that's just at the high school level. Nevertheless, as complicated as forming a game plan is, at least the mission is clear and simple. In fact, you could state the mission in one sentence. We need to move the football into the opponent's end zone more times than they move the football into our end zone. Yes, there are extra points, safeties, a difference between field goals and touchdowns, but at least the mission is clear. Move the football downfield on offense and stop them from moving downfield on defense. Well, what about our mission from Jesus? Is there some way to bring crisp clarity to our target on the wall by stating our mission in one sentence? 
After all, there are 7,957 verses in the New Testament alone that relate to our mission. No wonder our understanding of it is so fuzzy. I believe Jesus has given us a one-sentence summary of our mission. It's just nine words. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Taken, of course, from Matthew 6.33. I believe this rich sentence is as accurate a description of the Christian's mission as saying, The object of football is to get the ball into the opponent's end zone more times than they get the ball into ours is of the game of football. But Christians today often miss the simplicity and power of this mission summary. Why? Here are a few reasons. First, many Christians today come from traditions that misunderstand the term kingdom of God. The Bible-believing Christians of the 20th century in America were significantly shaped by a movement called dispensationalism, which believed in inerrancy but denied the significance of the created material world, promoted an overly spiritualized Christianity, denied God's command to Adam and Eve to shape culture, called the cultural mandate, and instead urged separation from the evil world. Its view of the end times, called premillennialism, de-emphasized the present rule of Christ's kingdom, teaching instead that Christ's kingdom does not really come until the final return of Christ. This view ignored the command to seek the kingdom because it saw the kingdom as primarily future. It mistakenly understood the words of the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, to be a request for Jesus to return soon instead of a request for Christ's present kingdom of righteousness to spread over the earth. Tim Keller explains, Some conservative Christians think of the story of salvation as the fall, redemption, heaven. In this narrative, the purpose of redemption is escape from this world. Only saved people have anything of value, while unbelieving people in the world are seen as blind and bad. If, however, the story of salvation is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, then things look different. In this narrative, non-Christians are seen as created in the image of God and given much wisdom and greatness within them, even though the image is defaced and fallen. Moreover, the purpose of redemption is not to escape the world, but to renew it. It is about the coming of God's kingdom to renew all things. The second reason some believers miss the Matthew 6.33 summary of our mission is that when they hear, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, they hear this command primarily as the evangelistic call to be saved. Good theology teaches us that the only way any of us is truly righteous is to be declared righteous, that is, justified by God the judge through our faith. So some default to thinking that seeking righteousness any other way means pursuing self-righteousness. 
to seek righteousness feels like moralism to us. However, and it is a big however, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who commands us to seek first his righteousness. He also taught us to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Righteousness, dikaiosune in the New Testament, is not just a term to describe our being declared legally righteous by God the judge. It is also the term to describe our sanctification, our character growth into holiness. Dikaiosune is whatever conforms to the moral will of God. It describes right living. It describes what is just, what is wholesome. To pursue righteousness is to pursue wholeness, the restoration of everything on earth broken by sin. It is to make life the way it was supposed to be before Adam and Eve brought sin's destruction into the world. It is to restore shalom, complete flourishing over every inch of the earth through restored harmony with God, harmony within ourselves, with other humans, and with the material world. Jesus' mission was not only to justify, declare righteous, the elect, it was also to transform their character and restore wholeness, rightness I like to call it, to his entire good creation. Seeking righteousness is not moralism, it is our mission. There is a third reason why many Christians miss our calling to spread Christ's righteous kingdom over the earth, instead remaining silent in critical discussions today about gender, sexuality, marriage, what is best for children, the sanctity of life. They mistakenly believe that voicing opinions about the issues of our day is being too political and that Christians should not impose their religious values on others. This mistaken thinking is at the heart of a false, secular, sacred divide being promoted by many in the social media. It is based on a misunderstanding of Thomas Jefferson's wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson never intended to cancel religious views from public debate. John Stone Street explains, No statement about religious liberty has generated more controversy than when Thomas Jefferson, in his letter to the Danbury Baptists, prescribed a quote-unquote wall of separation between church and state. The key question is what the wall was meant to keep out. Many assume Jefferson wanted to keep religion out of politics. But a new video from the First Liberty Institute explains the letter's context. Feeling pressure from Connecticut's established Congregationalist Church, the Danbury Baptists and Jefferson wished to keep the government out of religion. Although not a Christian in any orthodox sense, Jefferson did not want religion abolished from public life. Just two days after writing the Danbury letter, for example, he began holding church services in the House of Representatives. This, as a recent Library of Congress exhibit makes clear, was a deliberate way of supporting religion as an aspect of Republican government. 
And of course, Jefferson argued that nature and nature's God is what endows people with inalienable rights, including the right to religious expression. For a Christian to think that he should not bring his moral values into civic discussions about the laws that govern our world is to misunderstand the concept of the separation of church and state and to deny God's first command to Adam and Eve to subdue, to rule the earth according to God's laws of righteousness. Let's move to a fuller discussion of Matthew 6.33, Seek First the Kingdom of God. In this verse, Jesus hearkens back to the Genesis 1 calling of Adam and Eve to impact the world around them, shaping it according to God's agenda of righteousness. Indeed, it is assigned to us by our Lord as our top priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. By definition, the word seek requires intentionality. It means to pursue, to go after, to follow. It means deciding to move toward a goal, whether it is seeking a gold medal or more customers through advertising. The context surrounding this command to seek first God's kingdom suggests that a good translation of this word zeteo might be to be preoccupied with. Here's what I mean. In the rest of Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, first, don't be preoccupied with what others think of you. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others." Don't be preoccupied, said Jesus, with what others think of you. Second, don't be preoccupied with piling up earthly treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Don't be preoccupied, says Jesus, with piling up earthly treasure. Thirdly, don't be preoccupied with worry. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Don't be preoccupied, says Jesus, with worry. Instead, says Jesus, do be preoccupied with something else, the kingdom of God, your first priority. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those who put their faith in Christ are not called to a life of haphazard spontaneity, They are called to put their energy into pursuing something. In fact, says Jesus, we are to avoid three distractions which can easily push kingdom pursuit into the background. The fear of what others think of us, preoccupation with building a nest egg of material security, and obsession with worry. 
Instead, what is to preoccupy us is advancing the kingdom of God. One reason we fail to keep our call to seek God's kingdom of righteousness in the forefront of our minds is that it is nearly impossible to strive toward reaching a goal that is nebulous and out of focus. We must have a concrete picture of the kingdom of God or we can't stay focused upon it. Fortunately, Matthew, the author of this gospel, understood much of the confusion surrounding the concept of God's kingdom. As a Jew who celebrated the Psalms, he knew that God's people often sang of God's kingship over the whole earth, meaning his universal sovereign rule over all the affairs of men. But Matthew knew that could not be what Jesus was commanding his followers to pursue because God is already sovereign. Being one of the twelve, Matthew had heard Jesus use the term kingdom of God in many seemingly different ways. For example, the kingdom of God is a community in which the king exercises dominion with his followers on his right and left, in which the righteous shine, and from which the wicked are cast out. It is a gift from the heavenly Father, is being prepared by God for his people to mention just a few. So what aspect of the kingdom of God are Jesus' followers to seek as the highest priority in their lives? Matthew makes it quite clear which aspect of the kingdom of God Jesus was referring to by continuing the Matthew 6.33 command, seek first the kingdom of God with the words and his righteousness. Matthew uses a grammatical structure called a hendiadis to show that the kingdom of God and righteousness are being used synonymously. Seeking first the kingdom of God is seeking the righteous rule of Christ over every sphere of human life. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of righteousness. Well, what is the case for Matthew 6.33 being a summary of our entire mission? To say that our entire mission from Christ can be reduced to pursuing the spread of rightness over earth is, in my view, invaluable for staying focused on it. Yet, you decide if the following makes my case. Here are some quick bullet points to make that case. First, as God's image bears, Adam and Eve were given a kingdom, earth, to rule righteously for the high king. Adam and Eve rebelled, enslaving their kingdom to Satan, sin, and death, that is, unrighteousness. A second Adam, called the Messiah, was promised who would one day set Adam's kingdom free from its unrighteousness, its slavery and destruction brought by the kingdom of darkness. He would establish righteousness over the earth. The bondage of the Old Testament saints to military powers who conquered them were the sanctions brought upon them for breaking their covenant with Yahweh. The root need, therefore, was never the overthrow of the Amorites or Assyrians, but the overthrow of sin. Satan, sin, and death were always the true tyrants. The second Adam, Jesus, overthrows the corruption of the fallen order caused by Adam's sin and demonstrates the arrival of the new order. By his healing power, he shows the kingdom of God reverses the curse on Adam's kingdom brought about by their sin, their unrighteousness. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. Broken human bodies are made whole. 
Even destructive forces of nature are overpowered. The curse upon them because of Adam's sin is temporarily overcome by the command of earth's rightful king. Jesus empowers his disciples to heal and to explain that such restored bodies demonstrate that the kingdom of God is near. The ultimate vanquishing of the destructive effects of sin's reign over the earth is Jesus' overthrow of death. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, the widow's son, and his friend Lazarus. In doing so, Jesus demonstrates more than his divine power. He is showing that he has come to overthrow the brokenness and havoc spread through all of creation when Adam and Eve yielded the throne of their kingdom to sin. The arrival of King Jesus' new order is further manifested by his power over Satan's kingdom. In Matthew 12:26 and following, Jesus interprets his own mission to be the invasion of Satan's kingdom. Paul explains Jesus' victory over the kingdom of darkness. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Satan, sin, and death have been disarmed and dethroned from ruling earth, but not destroyed. They remain to conduct guerrilla warfare as Christians seek to spread Christ's kingdom of righteousness over the earth. That is why Jesus begins the Great Commission, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. God the Son already had all the authority in heaven and on earth. He created them. So what can Jesus mean? Jesus, in his role as the second Adam, is the victor who booted Satan's sin and death off of earth's throne, taking it over. The Great Commission text reads, Go and make disciples of the nations. This statement of our mission does not read, Go and make individual disciples from every nation. The Greek says, Disciple all the nations. Discipleship admittedly begins with responding to the gospel by faith, then coming into the body of Christ to be taught Jesus' commands. But then it is to be sent out, just as Adam and Eve were, using their influence to shape culture, to disciple the nations. The mission of Christ followers can be stated succinctly. It is to seek rightness over the earth. Here are some questions you might contemplate this week as you focus on this clear expression of our mission. First, a right relationship with God. How am I doing at loving my Lord? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. Next, what about right heart attitudes? How am I doing with Peter's exhortation? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Our mission concerning the world around me restoring rightness. What areas of brokenness around me has God put on my heart? Individuals? Worldview issues? What opportunities do I have to speak truth into such brokenness? 
What opportunity do I have to exercise compassion toward the broken? How might I become better equipped to winsomely articulate the biblical worldview? By the way, I highly recommend the Colson Center's What Would You Say short videos. So, mathematically, how many goals can occupy the position of first in your life? We all know the answer is only one. If you stay focused on one mission, seeking first Christ's agenda of righteousness over every sphere of your life and world, then, says Jesus, everything else will take care of itself. To summarize this episode in our series, Don't Waste Your Life, Rule It for Jesus, we've seen that overcoming disordered living requires first a conviction that my inner world of the spiritual will govern the outer world of activity, and second, that such intentionality will require us to set apart some time meeting at the bridge of our lives with our admiral to focus our course setting for the upcoming week. The third requirement, our topic in this episode, is a clear mental picture of our destination, our mission from Jesus. We considered Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 that his followers were to avoid the common everyday distractions of life and be preoccupied instead with seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We observed that Christians today often miss the significance of this calling for at least three reasons. Some naturally default to the concept of Christ's kingdom as a reference to his future kingdom of righteousness. Some naturally default to thinking that seeking righteousness is moralism, a legalistic attempt to earn salvation. Some have been subtly persuaded through a misunderstanding of the concept of separation of church and state, that they should not speak into public debates about gender, sexuality, the family, because it is imposing their religion. However, spreading the rule of Christ's righteous kingdom is our mission. This call is a renewal of Adam and Eve's original calling to shape culture according to God's righteous character, an expression of what it means to make disciples not within all nations, but of all nations. Jesus taught his followers to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and as all masters do, to embrace their master's ultimate cause. In the case of Jesus, it would be the overthrow of the reign and destruction of sin over Adam's kingdom and the restoration of Adam's kingdom to wholeness, to rightness. Seeking rightness always begins inside with our own first heart loyalties, loving God with all our hearts, and then secondly with our heart attitudes, with the Holy Spirit enabling us to build right attitudes. That mission then is preoccupied with bringing Christ's agenda of rightness and wholeness into every sphere of life where we have influence. For further prayerful thought, this week's discussion questions are mentioned in the podcast, but are also mentioned in your show notes. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week's podcast will continue the series, Don't Waste Your Life, Rule It for Jesus, 
by doing what I thought I was going to do this week by looking at how Jesus' teaching about prayer relates to our specific mission. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. Thank you for listening today, and if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other men about it, as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well.